2: This fall on How Do We Fix It? We've published seven episodes on polarization, and this is the final one. We're ending with a bang. Rigid division is a huge problem, and we've examined a number of aspects of it. It's a threat to our democracy.
0: Yeah, it's stopping us from making progress on so many fronts, from doing something about massive government debt to the growing crisis along the southern border.
2: And also making some kind of constructive progress on climate change, as well as easing gridlock in Congress.
0: In this episode, fighting back against polarization and rigid divides.
2: Our guests are Eric Emanuel and Manu Meal.
1: The people that are dominating our discourse, the people that are selecting the candidates that enter the main stage at the general election are not people like you and I. It's the people that have and are prisoners of their ideology.
3: I'm hopeful because not a single person I've talked to has said, why on earth would you do that? Why on earth would you want to talk to somebody of the other side? Why on earth would you want to to have a conversation that doesn't end in fighting? Why on earth would you want to treat someone like a human being with dignity?
0: Our show is about fixes.
1: Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How
2: How do we we fix fix it? How do we
0: fix it? Over the summer, Richard, you became one of the Complicating the Narratives Fellows. That's a complicated mouthful in itself. (laughs) One of the Complicating the Narratives Fellows for 2023. The project is organized by the Solutions Journalism Network, a group we've worked with now for quite a few years at How Do We Fix It? And they help journalists find new ways Ways to report on controversial issues and navigate polarization in politics it draws on experience of various experts in conflict mediation among other topics
2: our seven most recent podcasts on polarization are part of this initiative solutions journalism network helped pay to fund these shows and also helped me to go to the annual braver angels convention during the summer more about that movement coming up later in the show
0: I wish I could have joined you. It sounds like that was a really uh, great experience. And during that convention, uh, you recorded uh, a number of interviews that we've been hosting here at How Do We Fix It? Today, we have two that you recorded at that convention in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, a good place to discuss uh, (laughs) partisan (laughs) divides. Uh, The first is with Eric Emanuel, CEO and director at the Institute of Local Government in California. Her nonprofit promotes good government at the local level and helps officials build trust in their communities.
2: Recently, that task has become a lot more challenging. My first question to Erica was about polarization and how it's affecting local politicians and officials.
3: I think for a long time, local officials did not feel polarization at the local level in the same way that we might have always felt it in the federal um, and kind of national and statewide space. But in the last few years, we see an infusion of of partisan politics um, in our local agencies now, and it's because it's also infusing uh, the the communities that we're in, and so um, that's how it's really um, affecting local governments is that they're starting to be. Um, a little less about the community as a whole, and started to retreat a little bit into their corners. And it's not a consistent thing. It's a subtle thing that has grown over time, and we are seeing that people are are kind of lining up along party lines on some issues. And it's not just partisan politics. it's also divisiveness and incivility interpersonally. So it's been a challenge.
2: Can you give me an example
3: of that? Absolutely. You know, um, and while we we pride ourselves, you know, on providing conscious counsel to our our local agencies, we serve uh, 482 cities, 58 counties all in California, and then 2500 special districts, whoever needs us, we try and support them if they if they'd like. And so over the last two to three years, our organization has done dozens of trainings around effective councils and governance and how to work together better because of toxicity within councils.
2: Councils meaning local government organizations? Yes,
3: city councils, county boards of supervisors, board of directors at agencies, where people are coming in, they're running for an office, for example, they're coming in as a strong candidate, and then they have to transition from candidate to that elected office and to governing and that transition is hard when you've you've run a, a divisive potentially and challenging election and you've now moved into a different role of a governing body.
2: And do we have more divisive local elections than we used to?
3: Absolutely. On the one hand it's great, right? Because you have people who are passionate about something, incredibly passionate. And sometimes they're passionate about national issues and are running on a local office for national reasons, but What we're finding is that people are running on a single issue, and then you realize that at the local level, governing at the local level involves a lot more, right? So a a single
2: issue, for instance, in a school board election, perhaps someone's upset about what their kids are being taught. Right. and that's the issue for them rather than the rest of, of the, the rest education. Of
3: right. And in our organization, we see people that will run, let's say, on a platform of um, potentially like uh, housing or homelessness. But there's a myriad of other things that you're going to do in that role as, a, as an elected that bridge beyond that.
2: Are you finding it's harder for both political parties, and I guess in some cases for independents, to recruit candidates for local offices. Absolutely.
3: You know, social media has complicated things a little bit. Um, People have a, a wall up in the social media world where they have, you know, we talk about the personality and the persona types of people that they are willing to say and do things on social media that they would never do in public. And um, I would tell you that it is a much more challenging environment for someone running for office. And they feel like they are a target. They are certainly, um, they are a target individually. Their families can become targets, their homes, their properties, when people disagree. Um, we're seeing that, that uh, constituents are resorting sometimes to violence and violent behavior. So is there's threatening behavior. So it's definitely a risk that you take when you run for office. And, and we see a lot of people not wanting to run for that reason. Our council meetings, and I say city council as an example, but board of supervisors meetings and even, and even at the special district level, they used to take two hours. Sometimes they're running four, five, ten hours long. That is the kind of thing that when you're not only are you going to be in a meeting for 10 hours, right, you're also going to be potentially yelled at for 10 hours straight. When it's done with the tearing down of a person's humanity, that's that's really difficult to withstand.
2: And there are more examples of that now than in the past? Than
3: ever. I was able to speak to a coalition of mayors from across the country and to a person. They are all feeling this level of they are literally... Um, Being attacked physically and verbally and on social media and in person. Um, And so that is a challenging thing to say when you're trying to determine if you're going to run for office, why would you do it? And if you're staying in office, do you want to stay? They are public servants,
2: and many of these public servants are not paid, or if they oh, are paid, certainly. they're paid very little amount. Very
3: of money. little, and certainly not number uh, the number of hours it takes. I mean, this the stacks of staff reports and packets that every I'll use city council as an example because they typically meet more frequently. It's you know three, four inches thick that they have to read in their weekly packets, single page <laughs> that they're gonna read. And it's a lot of investment of time and research. And um, there's already a challenge with getting a diverse population to run for office. And that w- as trust in our government erodes and the challenges of being a public servant rise, it's gonna be even harder. A mother or a father with young children can't commit that kind of time and wouldn't wanna put their kids or family at risk.
2: Does racism play an additional role and be be a greater barrier for, for many people Absolutely. of color running for local office?
3: Absolutely, and I don't want to discount the fact that many people of color have not felt that the country has supported them, right? That the institution of government itself may be broken and needs to be either fixed or rebuilt or torn down and so when when people that are coming into office with that platform want to come in they sometimes feel as though in order to get into office they have to remove their um, ideals around race and racism and that's a really difficult thing to 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 talk through and to work through Um, i think there's also the perception that you have to sell out to to get into the spaces to be in these places and so People need to learn how to have really strong and good conversations um, about racism and about how that impacts um, our government.
2: We always ask this question on our podcast, how do we fix it?
3: How do we fix it? I think we have to, uh, start where we're starting right now. I think one of the reasons why the Institute for Local Government is, is we, we, we sought out Braver Angels a couple of years ago um, when we wanted additional voices around how do we fix this problem. So last year, we actually um, stood a series on managing difficult conversations and bridging divides. And we had over 250 to 275 elected officials and staff from different municipalities all over California participating in each one of those. Huge turnouts, huge interest, we fix it by acknowledging the problem and then banding together and agreeing that with to a person we are going to do better. And something that I've heard that was really poignant for me is that it all starts with each one of us. Um, We can address the institutions, right? We can talk about it, big macro changes. But we do have to start individually. It starts with an individual elected official, individual resident, an individual person saying, I myself am going to hold myself to a standard of civil discourse, of being open-minded, of being willing to talk to somebody that has a different viewpoint, being willing to engage.
2: Are there practical steps that are taken in those training sessions to help to to get people to a point where they they can uh,
3: we model the more. behavior so we we do the the theoretical you know we talk about here's conceptually what you can do here's a framework for it and then we spend a lot of time actually practicing it getting in small group sessions and doing the talking points here and there so now you be a constituent a and you be the elected official and here is the issue that they're coming in against and and they're really frustrated with you how do you practice active listening how do you You know, repeat back what you've heard. How do you make sure that they feel respected and appreciated for their contributions to the dialogue? How do you let them down and say, thank you, but I can't do this, this, and this? How do you share your perspective without invalidating theirs? Are you hopeful? Oh, so hopeful. I'm hopeful because not a single person I've talked to has said, why on earth would you do that? Why on earth would you want to talk to somebody of the other side? Why on earth would you want to to have a conversation that doesn't end in fighting? Why on earth would you want to treat someone like a human being with dignity? These are all things that people believe in their core. They have a moral compass. They have a sense of um, how they think they behave as individuals. and, And they want to live up to that standard. And when you articulate it, as this is how our society takes care of itself, and this is how our democracy was built and how it should be continue, they agree. They don't disagree. It's it's in the heat of the moment that we disagree, and it's when we're following a mass, you know, we're following the the trends, and we allow ourselves to get riled up by, let's say, social media or the media or whoever is pumping media information out. And I think when we start to think differently and independently and say, hey, you know what? I am a good person. I do believe to do unto others. I do think we should treat people kindly. I want to be treated kindly. Yeah. Once you start articulating our values and lead with values and lead with shared values, everyone follows along and everyone agrees. Even people on other ends of the political spectrum.
2: Erica Emanuel, thank you for joining us on How Do We Fix It?
0: Ah, thank you, Richard, for having me. Erica Emanuel of the Institute for Local Government in California with a clear example of how polarization is making the task of effective government in towns and cities even harder than before.
2: Yeah, as we mentioned, I spoke with Erica at the Braver Angels convention. She played a leading role at that uh, four-day event, co-chairing a large number of panel discussions and events.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that. Tell us a little more about Braver Angels. Who are they?
2: They're a citizen organization that was formed, I think, seven years ago, pretty quickly after Donald Trump became president. And they used to be called Better Angels, then they changed their names to Braver Angels. And simply put, they work to reduce polarization by uniting conservatives and liberals in in what they call a working alliance with workshops, debates, and public events. And this convention uh, was a a big part of that. It was held pretty much 150 years to the day after the Battle of Gettysburg during the Civil War, which lasted three days and was a, a pivotal and terrible event. The convention... Not So Terrible, brought together about 700 citizens, red, blue, and somewhere in between. And we have a link to what they've been doing on our show page at HowDoWeFixIt.me.
0: And Braver Angels is part of what's come to be known as the bridging community, scores of local and national groups that are pushing back against rigid divides. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies.
2: It's that time of the year.
0: Our second interview is with the leader of a cross-partisan student group. I notice you don't say bipartisan. They're called Bridge USA. Manu Meal is the organization's 24-year-old leader. He says their mission is to push back against the dehumanization of others and the belief that other people's experiences are not valid. I found this really fascinating, Richard, especially his ideas about how the the difference between a vigorous argument, which engages the other side's uh, points, and the process of assuming that the other side has no validity, the dehumanization of your political opponents. It's a really important distinction.
1: Yeah. So my name is Manu Meal. I'm the CEO of Bridge USA, and I'm incredibly passionate about empowering young people to understand and bridge political differences so that we can strengthen our democracy.
2: First, tell me about the the organization. Bridge USA is one of the
1: largest and fastest growing student movements in the country trying to elevate and change how we talk about politics. We have college and high school chapters across the country, 50 college, 20 high school chapters as of this recording. And what we're doing is we're empowering what I call the hopeful majority of young people that uh, Are either incredibly disengaged from politics or feel that the partisan voices are just
2: incredibly loud. How do we make progress on this?
1: Two observations which lead to the answer for me personally and for our organization. The first is the amount of times I've met people that have conversations with other folks in person and say, we are not as divided as we are actually led to believe. And the second, is the amount of times I meet young people on college campuses that are just scared to say what's on their mind, that are just walking on eggshells. I think we all can relate to that hearing this. And our job is to empower and change the norms, to create spaces on campuses across the country so that students feel like they're actually in the majority when they think, actually, you know what? I want to have that conversation. I want to have that dialogue.
2: Well, that dialogue across difference or that difficult conversation. That difficult
1: conversation, but importantly, it's not just a difficult conversation for some kumbaya circle. It is a difficult conversation for us to better understand why we think what we think.
2: So you've, you've said two really interesting things. One is that we're not as divided as we think we are, and two, in many places, and especially on college campuses, people are not comfortable voicing their true opinions. So let's take the first one. We're not as divided as we think we are. I don't think Twitter's a real space.
1: 80% of all user-generated content on Twitter comes from 20% of users. Second statistic, primaries. About 10% of Americans, on average, vote in our primary system. The people that are dominating our discourse, the people that are selecting the candidates that enter the main stage at the general election are not people like you and I. It's the people that have and are prisoners of their ideology, that are not on the ideological extremes, but what I call the temperamental extremes.
2: The second thing you were talking about was that people don't feel comfortable expressing their own views. Is it a majority of people on college campuses who feel uncomfortable expressing what they really think, or is it is it not such a great problem?
1: No, it is the loudest voices. This is not a problem of the majority this is a problem of the loudest minority voices imposing their closed-mindedness on an exhausted majority. And I'm sick and tired of people equating passion with violence. I'm sick and tired of people equating passion with extremism. I'm incredibly passionate about what I believe. And I'm also incredibly passionate about learning what you believe. Not because I want my mind changed, but because I know that you've got something to offer. And maybe that thing to offer does not advance my ideas, but what it does is it at least exposes me It helps me be curious.
2: Let's talk about polarization. How bad do you think it is? And how much of a threat to our democratic system is it?
1: I think it's an incredibly big threat to our democratic system. And I also think that we're not as divided as we think we are. When you're actually talking to people on the ground, when we're talking to our family members, when we're listening to each other, hearing each other, while our values are very different, Most people are willing to come to the table. What we're concerned about is affective polarization. And what is that? Affective polarization is this notion that we as Americans personally believe that we on the other side are evil. That if you're a Democrat, you must be a communist and an evil person that does not like America. Or that if you're a Republican, you must be a fascist that does not care about race. Affective polarization is the increase of intolerance towards each other as humans. 2021, summer of 2021, I went on a road trip from Austin to Boston. Go from Austin to Lake Charles, Louisiana, to New Orleans, to Meridian, Mississippi, Selma, Alabama, Decatur, Georgia, South Carolina, then go to Fayetteville, North Carolina, Washington, D.C., and in Boston. Met conservative pastors in Georgia, black activists in Selma, met liberal students in Austin, No matter where we went, everybody that we spoke to in majority, again, 80, 90% affirmed to me that we're all into Team Human. Almost everybody said, I want to live in a country that respects me. Almost everybody said, I want to live in a country where my family and my kids do better than I did. Almost everybody said, I want to live in a country and a society where we each feel like we each belong just so that I can feel safe in my community how many times have we had bad encounters in person? Not many. I mean, I'm hard-pressed to find that we live in one of the most divided times in the history of America, and yet the most Americans I talk to say, you're all right. I'm all right. Let's have a conversation. How tragic it is that the most ambitious democratic experiment in the history of humanity would go down because the loud minority voices on both sides have dominated the microphone.
2: It's More difficult to hate someone up close when you look them in the eye than hating somebody you've never met.
1: You are so right. And the reason is because when you're in person, you're accountable. We've
2: mentioned that Bridge USA is part of the bridging movement. To you, what does bridging mean? What does this movement, this overall movement that you're part of, involve? Are there shared principles?
1: There's a movement
2: I call it the hopeful majority.
1: It is a movement of Americans that believe a couple of things. The first is that everybody's worthy of a dialogue, not to be platformed, but to be challenged so that we can live in a society where we can get to the collective search of truth. Number two is that the best way for our democracy to move forward is that we have to understand how to share this country.
2: Are we Polarized partially because of our success as a nation. 50 years ago, people who dominated the conversation looked like me. They were white Anglo-Saxon male Protestants. And then women started entering the picture more. Catholics became much more involved in the political process, Jews, people of color, is it that because of that success in more people being involved in the conversation, that there are more opportunities for division?
1: I think I understand what you're getting at, and I'll I'll word it slightly differently. Yeah, please
2: do, because I'm struggling with this. For
1: anybody that's listening, I'm an Indian-American citizen of the United States. My parents came from India in, in 98. I was born in New Jersey, and then I lived in... India for a couple of years with my grandparents, came back to the U.S., moved around a bunch. The United States is, by 2045, Richard, going to be a majority minority country. It's going to be the most diverse democracy in the history of societies. The moment that we're about to embark on is one of the most ambitious experiments that humanity has ever seen. As you said, Jews, Hispanics, Indians, gays, Lesbians, straight people, trans. white, black, trans, you name it. Everybody living together? Right. That is extraordinary. We can take a step back and understand that with ambition comes a lot of adversity and challenge, but also a lot of opportunity. As Thomas Paine said, America, the cause for America is a cause for humankind. And the reason being is because this is is freaking unprecedented.
2: And that's what makes it so amazing. Manu Meal, the young and very energetic CEO of Bridge USA, I should mention that this interview was recorded uh, a couple of months ago now, uh, before uh, the most recent protests on and off campuses about what's been going on um, in the Middle East, as well as other events. So there was no reference to that because it hadn't happened
0: yet. And certainly what we've been seeing on college campuses, talk about the dehumanization that he talks about. You know, we see this very, very strongly in the efforts to to divide, you know, people between some are colonialists or settlers, all this these jargon words to try to pretty much disregard the 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 victims of of what's happened as as full-fledged human beings and it's so it's a challenge we need this bridging more than ever right now
2: coming up next uh, a recommendation
0: so this is a little self-serving richard but uh last night i attended uh the uh, an annual benefit dinner for Commentary Magazine, a, a publication that I I write for. I'm the, what they call the tech commentary editor. Commentary Magazine, just a fascinating institution that has its roots in a uh, a journal of Jewish opinion going back to the 1940s that gradually became uh, through the 60s and 70s came to embrace a. a a wide set of ideas that once were called neoconservative today you might you might call it centrist conservative the kind of non-trumpy wing of the conservative movement for, with a a distinct uh orientation in terms of the the history, the culture, and the political interests of the Jewish people and a a robust uh, defense of of the importance that uh, the country of Israel continue to exist in in our world. For me, it's a real honor to be uh, part of an institution that has a lot of great writers and thinkers today and has a history of publishing really important work from major thinkers through the past. If you go back to the 1960s, the magazine was publishing Hannah Arendt, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and many others. I recommend it right now because of what's going on in Israel and the, the crisis of the Hamas attack. And what I see as a crisis of a kind of a global antipathy to, in, in many ways, to the existence of, of, of the Jewish state.
2: As a liberal, and I felt this way ever since uh Donald Trump came onto the stage in in 2015, that we really need robust conservatives who are critical of populism and who support democracy and support different opinions being voiced uh, to speak up. And they do, they speak up loudly in commentary magazine. And I think that at this time in our political life, your voices are are that much more important. And now, as usual, a few thoughts about today's interview, or in this case, interviews, with Eric Emanuel and Manu Meal. We're wrapping up our series on polarization. And as you've said to me, Jim, we live in a time of divides, intolerance, and even disdain for our political opponents. So this is the right time to highlight the polarization crisis and look at ways to pull back from it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've been shocked. I think many people have been shocked by scenes of protesters trying to break down the doors of Grand Central Terminal, a a train station I've I uh, used to walk through every day and and walk through frequently trying to attack the police officers sheltering within, uh, a, a Jewish uh, person holding an Israeli flag, hit over the head and murdered on the streets of Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago. It's a scary time, and we are not as advanced, we're not as understanding and tolerant as we thought we were. And... We're going to really have to work hard at at making sure that the people who are open to dialogue uh, are are having those dialogues and and not intimidated into silence. but i am I'm less optimistic today than I would have been a couple of months ago.
2: And that's our podcast for this week. And again, thank you to Solutions Journalism Network and the Democracy Group for supporting our podcast. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. I'm Richard Davies.
0: And I'm Jim Meggs.
2: As always, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Traffic jams, tailgating,
1: pile ups. Ugh, oh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse?